Today, I am so happy to share with you the story of Jamie O'Donohue. Jamie is someone who I am so grateful to know now, and he's also someone who I asked to join me on the show without really knowing much of their story. In fact, I think I totally surprised him when I asked him if he'd be willing to do an episode, but I'm so glad he said yes, and you are going to be too. Jamie is intentional with his words, and he's thoughtful about his faith. You're going to hear that. You'll hear him share about his life as a young boy in Ireland on his grandparents' dairy farm, how loss and upheaval in his family as an adolescent left him wandering and wondering, and how the truth of the gospel impacted his life. He's going to tell us not just what God has done, but what he's continuing to do over years of healing. Jamie and his wife, Grace, live in Tulsa, Oklahoma with their son, Killian. And don't worry, I definitely asked him how a young boy from Ireland ended up married to a lovely Tulsa girl. It's a great story all on its own. Thanks for tuning in today. As you listen, would you think about someone who might be encouraged by this story and would you pass it along? I get the best feedback from listeners who heard a story and it resonated with them in a really unexpected way. These stories matter and God's using them in beautiful ways. So help me spread the word. And with that, here is my conversation with Jamie O'Donohue. Welcome to We Have This Hope. I'm Emily Curzon, and this is a podcast about the art of remembering and the practice of telling. On the show, we share stories of hope, looking backward at the work of God in our ordinary lives. This show is for those who are low on hope, those who need to be reminded that God is with us, and those who have a story to tell. That means it's for all of us. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. I'm so glad you're here. Jamie, welcome to We Have This Hope. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I am both delighted and equally terrified to be here. Well, I'm really grateful you're here and that you've taken the time out of your busy schedule. It's evening as we're recording. Both of our families are hanging out doing other things while we are tucked away doing this interview, but glad you're here. Thank you. I like to start off by asking people to just really basically tell us who you are and who you do life with regularly. So who are you and what does a regular day in your life look like? Yeah, thanks. As you said, my name is Jamie O'Donoghue. I'm from Ireland, if you could probably tell that at this point by the name and the accent. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I attend Cornerstone Church with you, of course, Emily, and with my family, Grace, my wife, and my son, Killian, who's 12 years old. And my best days are normal, mundane, ordinary days. I'm an automation integrator. It's my nine to five. I never know how to explain that in a really short, concise way. As Grace will say, I program natural gas plants. That's essentially what I do. I'm glad that you said what automated integration is because that was going to be <laughs> your next question my follow-up yep. question yeah my very next question what does that mean yeah. and so thank you but that means essentially you work on a computer most days mm -hmm. correct yeah i do I, I spend a lot of time at my computer i'm doing a lot of programming 
I it also scratches my graphic design itch as well because I get to design the graphics packages for operators to run their gas plant. But yeah, it's a great job. I work for a small engineering company. It's just me and one other person. And I've been doing it for about 14 years now. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, it's just me and one other guy that take care of all this. Wow, that's cool. What do you, What does your family do for fun? What do you do on a Saturday? On a Saturday? Oh, goodness. Should I say this? <laughs> I watch a sinful amount of sports. <laughs> just life, for me, life grew up around watching every sport under the sun on weekends. So this past Saturday, at the Australian Open tennis tournament was on, and so I watched that. Ariana Sabalenka won the women's tournament, which I was delighted by. So you don't know what that means, but that's okay. We go to a lot of Thunder games, watch Oklahoma City Thunder, of course. Uh, yeah, we watch it. We watch it. It's, it's awful. It really is terrible how much sports I watch. <laughs> I did not know that about your family. Yeah. Is Grace into all of those sports? Too? I think she has been adopted into it. Grace has a, a, a younger sister, and her dad just wasn't really into sports all that much. He's more of a hunter rather than a sports guy. And so they never really were a sports family. And so I think it was a, a cultural shock for her with quite simply how much time we spend watching any kind of sports. Jamie, what part of Ireland are you from? And would you give a little background to American listeners on what the cultural, what cultural life was like in Ireland or perhaps how it might be different mm. for someone your age who grew up in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm from Limerick, Ireland. That's where I'm from. It's, it's the third or fourth. I should know this. I don't. But it's the third or fourth largest city in Ireland, which that's not to say that's anything too impressive to an American. Ireland's quite small. Ireland is half the size of Oklahoma. So that'll kind of give you an idea of how small the island is. But Limerick City is a, it's a city towards the southwest coast. So I grew up there. Life was, it was simple. It was easy. I grew up in the 90s. Like I was born in 85. It's more, most of my formational years are in the 90s. There's a quote from one of our former presidents that I think actually best summarizes what life was like growing up for us and what life is like in general for Ireland. Irish culture, we're a vibrant first world country, but we have a humbling third world memory. Ireland is simultaneously an ancient country, but it's also a young country. And what I mean by that is when little Jamie O'Donoghue was going to school at six and seven years old, we cracked open our history books and we learned about this evil man named Dermid MacMurrachu who invited Henry II and his Anglo-Saxons to enter the country in the 12th century. And that was the first time the English ever invaded Ireland. We pick up that little thread of history and we just follow it to its conclusion to when Ireland gained independence in 1922. And so we're an ancient country, but we're also learning, I think still, even now, how to govern ourselves. What it means to be Irish is a deep connection to the land because we weren't able to possess our own land during all the time when essentially Ireland was a, was a colony, which is just an interesting tidbit of what it's like to be Irish, where we just have this memory of what it's like to be, to not have a lot, to not have a lot. And that kind of plays in a little bit to how life was like for me growing up. Irish people love to sweep things under the rug a little bit of things that kind of happened to, to us personally. But if anyone else needs any help with anything, we're like the first to jump on board and 
There's a little bit of white knight syndrome about Irish culture. Yeah, that's interesting. A close-knit community is super important. There's one of the main reasons why sports is such a popular thing in my household is because I was actually just talking to a friend about this last night. If you were there in Ireland, I don't know if you went down, if you ever went down to a pub on a Sunday afternoon, it seems like every man and his dog is down there getting their Sunday roast Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. watching whatever's on, whether it be a soccer match or a rugby game or whatever. It's And they're always packed out and standing room only. And I've hugged so many strangers from goals scored and we're celebrating (laughs) together. I have no idea who this person is. But that's life. Like life, life revolves around your community. Even now, my all my family that I grew up with are still are, are all back home. And my dad, he'll, he still goes down to the pub and he has this little community of people that he hangs out with on the weekends and some of the weekdays. <laughs> but yeah, life was simple, though, growing up. We didn't have a lot, but we didn't know what we didn't have. That's all really good. I wonder if there is a simple way for you to explain a very complicated piece of Irish history, and that is the division between Catholics and Protestants. And for you growing up in Southwestern Ireland, I'm assuming that means you grew up Catholic Mm -hmm. or Catholic roots, correct? I I just know someone is listening who didn't grow up in the 90s, has not heard of Bloody Sunday, didn't listen to you too. And so they don't know about those things. So Is there a succinct way to catch somebody up if they don't know about that? Yeah. So there's two things. If you've ever heard of the TV show Derry Girls, I think it's on Netflix. Okay. Yes, I've seen it. Okay. I I can't condone the amount of language that's in it. Not for little ears, for sure. But if you want to know what life was like for me in my adolescence, my teenage years growing up in Ireland, that is the show to watch. So when I was in Ireland, Dairy Girls, Mm. I think was relatively new. And there was this huge mural. I can't remember where we were. Huge mural post that someone had painted on the side of a building. And everyone told us to watch that show to understand the culture. Yep. You'll get it 100%. I won't be able to do justice to, to what life was like for someone living in Northern Ireland, especially during the era of the Troubles. I'm very much going to come at this from a Catholic point of view because that's how I was raised. Mm -hmm. Someone who was Protestant is going to have a very different opinion to what I'm probably about to say. So just whoever's listening to this, take that with a pinch of salt. There's no way I can be unbiased with this. The Protestants in Northern Ireland have primarily been the dominant people group up in the North. And for the most part, a lot of the Catholics experienced an incredible amount of discrimination. Mm-hmm. up in the north and so they were second class citizens in their own country police force was primarily protestant and they would discriminate against the catholics that were living in the north yeah it's a touchy subject it still is sure. it's a lot better now than what it was but even for me even so there was this one time it was like maybe early 2000 i was up in belfast and i walked into some burger king or something like that and and there was a girl roughly around my age, so I would have been maybe close to 20, maybe a bit younger than that. And I walked into Burger King and there was this girl standing behind the counter and she just had a nice demeanor, just a normal demeanor. And she asked me what I wanted and I opened my mouth and I said something and she immediately picked up on, oh, you're from down south. And her demeanor completely changed Wow. and barely looked at me, 
and that's not even a Catholic Protestant thing. That's a North South thing because there's an attitude of even the Catholics from the South abandoned us. That some people may feel in from the North. It's tough. It's a. It's messy. There's no easy way to talk about it without offending somebody. So I'm sure, trying sure. to pick my words very carefully. Because I am American, this perspective might be helpful for those listening. Is when we were in Belfast for a period, we went to a wall mm-hmm. that was built dividing neighborhoods. So, like you think wall, a border separating style wall with barbed mm-hmm. wire along the top. So it's splitting the neighborhood between Protestant and Catholic. On the wall is a mural, an art mural of other walls all around the world, dividing Mm -hmm. cities. And it was so compelling for me, not having grown up in an environment like that, to see that was something people in my demographic were impacted by. But it was what was compelling was, oh, this is still very relevant Mm -hmm. and raw for people right now. Yeah. Even today, there's a part of me that recoils at identifying myself with a label in regards to Christianity. We attend an Anglican church and I still, it's just, it it catches in my throat just to say, oh, I'm an Anglican. Am I placing an unnecessary barrier there for somebody? Because identifying yourself with a label in my country where I'm from, people immediately went into their opposing trenches and were ready to do battle over that. Over something where, without venturing into heresy here, we primarily believe mostly the same thing. Yeah, I, I, fa- I, I have found it to be dividing rather than unifying, yeah. just in my own experience. Yeah, That makes so much sense. Yeah. So tell me what your family was like growing up. Who did you grow up with? Who was in the home? And what were things like? Yeah, as I, as I was saying earlier, family life was very normal. I had a very normal, typical upbringing. We didn't have a lot, as I said, but we didn't know what we didn't have. I come from a very musical background. I come from a family of musicians, and I'm the black sheep of the family. I don't play anything. I don't sing anything. So, But, but yeah, but that was life. A lot of life revolved around music and in the home. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up, I think, was like the one thing that distinguished me from, I think, the rest of the family. My mom grew up in a, on a farm in a small village called Bruff, about maybe a 30-minute drive, 17 miles outside of Limerick. And when I was about 9 or 10, I probably spent every other weekend out there. And in summer holidays, I'd be out there maybe a week on, week off at a time. And so I was out there regularly. My grandfather had... He had a 55-acre dairy farm. By the time I was going out there, he had retired at that point. He had sold off most of his cattle, but gosh, I loved going out there. It was so good. My most abiding memories are of spending time out at my my grandfather, my grandparents' farm, I would think. How do you remember thinking and feeling toward yourself? You talked about already that you were in a family of musicians but you were not a musician. You could find you in the corner reading a book. And so already you're differentiating yourself a little bit from your family, but I wonder what other thoughts and feelings do you, you remember having at the time about yourself and about your family? We, we spoke about this briefly recently, you and I. There's a, a symphony that I enjoy listening to by a guy named Henrik Goretzky. 
and the symphony is split into three movements and I almost feel like my life is split into those three movements of that symphony. The first movement is right up until I was about maybe 12 or 13 years old and all of my feelings and emotions and memories of that time is, and again, I'm sure it probably wasn't like this at the time, but it was contentment and bliss. It was feeling secure that I had as set of parents that loved me and cared for me and I didn't have any worries in the world. But then that changed. And what I thought was the way life was supposed to be and the way life was completely turned upside down and I lost all bearings. I lost all bearing of myself. I lost the things that were firm that I could rely upon. And it was a period of life that no one should ever have had to have gone through. Do you tell us what happened? Yeah. So as I said, I was very close to my grandparents on my mom's side. And in one of the times when we were out at the farm, my grandfather, I don't remember why he was doing this, but he had called me out. He needed to use a chainsaw to cut up some wood. And I don't remember what the reason was. But we walked out to the back of the farm. And as he tried to start the chainsaw, he hurt his shoulder. And it was innocuous. And I've seen him hurt himself time and again. And my grandfather was like 79, 80 years old at the time and fit as a fiddle. He would be hopping over fences. And and I'm 12 years old at the time. And seeing your grandfather in a lot of physical pain was like, oh, that's different. I haven't seen that before, but... I didn't think anything of it. We all hurt ourselves at some point or another. What I learned later was that he had gone, he had, I, I don't quite know if he had dislocated his shoulder or whether he had just like torn ligaments, but long story short, they had discovered that he had cancer mm -hmm. as well. And I don't remember which one of my family members said this, but one of them had shared, it's just dumb. It's a dumb myth that the physical injury of hurting his shoulder had triggered the cancer. But what that had done for me was when he had hurt his shoulder, he had asked me not to tell anybody because this is what we do. We're Irish. We sweep things under the rug. We don't ever draw attention to ourselves. It's not a big deal. And so I carried that. I didn't tell anybody that he had hurt his shoulder because he had, my grandfather had asked me not to. And you have to understand that he was like a second father for me. And to carry around that, I was partly to blame. This is the thinking of a 12-year-old at the time that I was partly to blame for the doctors not being able to catch this in time because I hadn't spoken up. If I'd have said something that day that, Granddad, you need to go get checked out by the doctor, then he might be still alive. But when that accident happened, he didn't last long. He, they discovered the cancer, and I think about maybe within six to eight months, he had passed away. And that was in January of 1998. My grandmother his wife, they discovered that she had cancer not too long afterwards, and then she passed away that July of 98. Wow. And then my grandmother on my dad's side passed away of cancer the following month. I lost three of my grandparents in the space of eight months. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was very hard for obvious reasons, but it was also extremely difficult for my parents. My dad had lost his mom and my mom had lost both of her parents in a very short space of time. And I don't know what it did to them personally, but I know what it did to their marriage and because it ended not too long after that. The death of my grandparents all happened in 98 and in January of 99, I would have been 13. It wasn't too long after Christmas time. My mom sat me down and said, I'm leaving your father. I will never forget the way she said it. It's just matter of factly, I'm leaving your father. And if you can imagine my house, 
we were sitting in we were sitting in the dining room and to look off to the side through glass French doors you could see into the living room area and my dad was just sitting there and he, and he knew what conversation was going on and he was just sitting there and just watching the television not knowing I imagine for him not knowing what to say or what to do and yeah. I don't know to this day I have no idea why I did this because I actually would have been closer to my mom than I would have been to my dad but I asked my mom I said, who's staying here and who's leaving? And I think my mom said that I'm going to leave and dad will stay here. And I, I remember asking, is Holly, who's my younger sister, is Holly going with you? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, I'll stay with dad then. Not because I cared about my dad more than I cared about my mom, but in my mind, in my 13-year-old mind, fair's fair. You get one, not dad gets one. <laughs> that was my reasoning yeah. at the time. And that was simultaneously the best decision and the worst decision I think that I ever made up to that point. The best decision because my mom wasn't well. If I'm being the most charitable, she went through a lot. She became very, all I'll say is she became very angry and she took a lot of that anger out on my sister and she took a lot of that anger out on me. My mom's still around and so I want to try and do my best to honor her as well. We don't have a speaking relationship. We haven't spoken properly in in years and that choice is down to me i'll just say this not too long after she left there was an incident at her house where just a lot of abuse was happening and i had to leave by escaping the house and my dad rushed us down to the police station and we had to get a restraining order out on her yeah that was my teenage years my whole world turned upside down very quickly but simultaneously, I also had to grow up really quickly. First of all, thank you for sharing that. I'm just imagining what it's like to be 13. I'm remembering how developmentally vulnerable that age is and what whiplash, for lack of a better term, you likely had when you would have had whiplash just with the loss of grandparents, but then adding the family that you know falling apart, really, for lack of a better term. I'm wondering if you can, if you can go back to being 15, if you can remember at all, whether you had a sense of God, God's presence in your life up until this point, what role did that have in your world at all? Were you exposed to those things? Were they on your mind or not at all? Yeah. My, my grandmother on my mom's side, she was a deeply devout religious woman. And my first exposure to the gospel, even though I didn't know that I was being exposed to the gospel, was just from being in her presence. I can't think of a single person who best mirrored what it meant to be a, a quiet Christian. And I mean that in every positive sense of the word. She would go to mass every day. And because I was so close with her, I would go with her. And so it wasn't uncommon whenever I would go up to receive communion that the local parish priest would give me a blessing as well on top of it and when you're six and seven eight years old and the parish priest is handing out the communion wafer to every person down the line and he gets to you and he places his hand on your head as you're receiving communion you feel like a million dollars in that moment and I think that left a, a mark on me mm -hmm. when my whole world turned upside down 
at 12, 13, I stopped going to Mass. Not because, it's strange, it's not because I was angry with God. I just didn't think of him anymore. And that's almost scarier, honestly. I just didn't give God a second thought. And it was like that for a good four years, I would think. And then something changed. Ooh, I can't wait. I want to capture that really quickly when you said, I mm-hmm. just didn't think about him anymore. Mm-hmm. That almost being angry at God would be better because when we're angry about something, it's because we care. It's because we're invested in some way. I love the way you said it because I think it captures something that resonates with probably more people than the anger bit of just, I just don't think about it. It's just not mm-hmm. a part of my life. Um, yeah. When did it begin to matter again? When did you start to think about it and what was happening that stirred that up in your life? So I was desperately trying to put a moment on on what caused me to return. And I, for the life of me, just can't think of one defining moment. And I think most people's lives are like this. There's probably never one defining moment that draws people back to God. It's probably just a series of small little events that happen. I just have this one vivid memory. I remember walking through Limerick City by myself one day. And there's this old Franciscan church. And I remember, I just remember looking at the front doors. I have no other way to describe this in that I just in that moment felt a deep sense of a void, black hole, loss, Maybe it was like four to f- all the last four years of grief just all compounding in on me all at one time. And Emily, this was the first time that I had even registered God in my life in that moment. I just got to go inside there and pray. Wow. I went in. I kneeled down. And I remember just saying to myself, I have no idea why I'm here, <laughs> but I just need help. And that was it. I just need help. I've got an older brother. My dad had a previous relationship before he met my mom. And my brother's nine years older than I am. So we never lived in the same house together. But we were always pretty close. And as my brother tells it, he said, not long afterwards, I had said to him, Brian, what's new with life? And he had told me that he had started attending this church. And so... (laughs) Maybe about maybe four to five months later, he came over for Sunday dinner and I had asked that question again. And he said I'd asked it in the exact same way. What's new? What's new in life? And then he said the same thing again. I started going to this new church. And he said, and this time, I said, oh, tell me about that. And it surprised him because he was expecting the same blank stare again. But we went up to my room and I just started peppering him with questions. I was like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And it's all the it's all the silly, useless nonsense stuff that usually people it's all the controversial stuff that people usually ask in the beginning stages. <laughs> Love that in the beginning stages. Look, yeah. <laughs> Looking for all the reasons why I shouldn't go. Mm-hmm. Like I'm being pulled by this force, but what questions can I ask to resist? Right. How do I get out of this? Yes, exactly. <laughs> the knowledge that he had about things in the Bible just fascinated me enough to wanna go see what this was all about. That's cool. So 
they had their they had a Wednesday night service. They didn't call it Wednesday night church. They called it Wednesday night Bible study. And so I, that was the first ever non-Catholic service that I went to was this Wednesday night Bible study that had, I think, 10 or 15 people. And I remember my brother telling me, this is different than mass. <laughs> and I said, okay. So what does that mean, different than mass? And he explained a few things to me. You did not, not grow up I, in the Bible Belt. <laughs> no, not at all. So I remember thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to have an open mind. That's all I said to myself. I'm just going to have an open mind. And you walk in and there's someone new walking into a room of 10 to 15 people. You're going to stand out. Everyone was just really friendly, really respectful of the fact that this is someone new. Let's like dial down the weird down to a one, not dial it up to 11. And I say that affectionately. These are people that I love. I remember just thinking to myself, that was really thoughtful of them. And so I came back. And I remember every time I came back, that that black hole that I was experiencing, it just faded off into the distance a little bit. And that happened in December of 2002, and I haven't looked back since. I recently read Psalm 66, and in verse 16, the writer writes, Come in here, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. And I'm going to amend that slightly and just say, let me tell you what God is continuing to do for me, because this is still an ongoing process for me. I'm walking around these days finding that my my uh, emotions are a little bit more on the surface than I care <laughs> than I care to admit, but I find that I've become healthier in the process. I really like your amendment to Psalm 66, 16, because mm-hmm. we can tell of what God has done and we can tell of what he is doing. And that's the beauty of it. When you were talking, I was thinking of this really beautiful story. I'm going to tell it really quickly. It's from The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. And there's this scene where she's a little girl and she's on the train with her dad and her dad has a big suitcase. I think he was a watchmaker and they were traveling. And she asked him some kind of question about an adult thing that as a parent, you are always like, oh, do I have to explain that now? What am I going to say? And she tells the story that her father says, Corey, will you pick up this suitcase? And she tries to pick it up and it's too heavy. She's like, I can't carry it. And he said, Some things are too heavy for you to carry right now. I will always tell you the truth. You can come to me with anything, but some things are so heavy, I'm going to carry them for a little while. And I just like that story because as you're talking, I'm thinking there's a kindness to the way God carries parts of our story until we're ready to hold pieces of them. I think that's it's not God withholding. I think it's his kindness to us that, like her father, he's going to hang on to things until we're in a place that we can we can handle it, we can process it. Yeah, that resonates a lot with me. Jamie, what else has been a part of your healing? We've pers- You and I have talked about prayer. We've talked about grace and her role in your life. And so I just wonder what Mm -hmm. other things in the last several years as you've grown in your faith, what other things or people has God used to heal you and bring you along? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot, I think. (laughs) So yeah, recently it's been through one of the books that I've been reading. You probably know Tish Harrison Warren. Which book is it? 
I read nearly everything she's written. And I'm I'm rereading Prayer in the Night. Oh, Jamie. It's probably top three books of all time for me at this point in right. my life. Yeah. And and so I'm I'm rereading that. And I prefer to read in large chunks rather than small bite sizes. It's my preference. <laughs> this one I can't. It's small yeah. bite sizes because it's a few pages at a time, put it down, drink some tea, have some instrumental classical symphony music on in the background and reflect. Yeah. Lots of reflection. Yeah. And it's deep. It's deep. Yeah. It's not yeah. a, it wouldn't, you would miss so much if you blew through that book. Yeah. But it's also been through, actually, I hope she's listening, but someone you recently had on the show, uh, our mutual friend, Casey Rutherford, just listening to her story. Like you said earlier, it can be through listening to someone else's story and listening to what they have experienced in their life, where you place the mirror of their life in front of you and you ask yourself, what are the similarities here? What are the experiences that we have in common? And how did I handle them versus how this other person handled them? Is there anything to learn from that? Is there anything I need to let go? Is there anything I need to repent of? Is there anything that I need to admit that was wrong? Not just something that I did wrong, but something that was wrong, something that wronged me. So actually, it's something that Tish, I, I just read this morning. When Tish writes in her book that we, we do live in, a, in an age of outrage. And so the tendency is to swing that pendulum back too far in the opposite direction and just to be ultra stoic about issues and problems that we're facing. But that's not right either. It's sometimes it's a sometimes things need injustices and wrongs need to be named. And I think that's yeah. part of what's happening for me at the moment. I think right now I'm going through a period of just naming the things that a 13-year-old should not have to endure, should not have to experience. Man, and that is a very raw process. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I said this to you, but everyone who interviews on the podcast, I tell them, you're going to have a vulnerability hangover when this is done. And sure. I, that I speak from my own experience. Anytime I've shared my story the next day, I'm thinking, oh my God, that was ridiculous. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, why? Oh, and then I'm like, nobody yeah. likes me. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just give it like 72 hours. Okay. I'm dying to know how you met your lovely wife, Grace, and what in the world you're doing in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh my gosh. I know. I get made fun of by all my friends back home all the time. The short fun story is that I'm a mail order husband. Uh, She's going to love that. Oh, don't worry. She, I say it to her all the time. <laughs> I took a year off from school when I was 22 years old. The church that I went to back home in Ireland has a sister church slash parent church here in Tulsa. They had a one year, they called it a Bible school. It's, it is a Bible school. It's not like anything accredited or anything like that, but it's almost like an apprenticeship thing that they do for a year. And so I came over for that. I took a break and I came over to Tulsa for a year, applied for the visa, got the visa, got it for a year. And I came over and I was in class from eight to 12 
every day. And then from one to five, I would volunteer at the church. And Grace attended that church. But as Grace tells it, she met me for the first time when I walked in the doors and she had heard about this young, skinny Irish kid who had just moved over here to go to school for a year. And she wanted to be friendly and invite me to come to the next singles event. I have no memory of this at all. I have, I'm an introvert. I don't know if you know that about me. So it's, it, it's uncomfortable for me to meet people for the first time. So more than likely, I was trying to get out of talking to anyone at all. So yeah, apparently I gave her like a dirty look and just walked, went on my way. And fortunately for me, I was staying with a family who also happened to be friends with Grace and Grace's parents. They were all invited to come over and play cards one night, maybe about a month later. And as Grace tells it, she said, I'm just going to put my hair up in a ponytail. I'm not putting makeup on or anything like that. And I'm just going to come over. This guy's clearly not interested in me. So why am I even going to bother? So she came over and we all play cards and she walked in the door and I kind of went, whoa, who's that? (laughs) So yeah, in my mind, that was the first time we met, but in hers, it was the second time. And uh, yeah, we just, we became friends. We started dating in March the following year. Just realized, yeah, I think we want to see where this goes. Knowing that when my time in the States was going to come to a close in May or June time of 2008, that there was a very real possibility that if we were going to stay together, that she was going to be the one to move to Ireland. And so, yeah, I returned home in June of 08. And the plan was for her to come to Ireland and we were going to get married in Ireland. We would live in Ireland. And so this is 2008, right? So this is, I think Facebook might have just been a thing, but we were communicating via MySpace. So this is how long ago this was. I would have to purchase a phone card, like a, a long distance phone card. And we would talk for like an hour, two hours every Saturday and another hour to two hours every Sunday. Wow. And so I would get off work and I would come home and we would chit chat on the phone. And I think pretty quickly we both felt in prayer that I was meant to move back to the States rather than her moving. She had said that she knew long before I did, which that's not surprising at all. (laughs) That was going to be the case. But that presented challenges because if Grace was going to move over to Ireland, the process was going to be she would come over, we would get married, we would take a little jaunt down to the local police station and I would introduce myself to say to the nice officer and I would say, how's it going? I'm Jamie. I'm Irish. Here's my passport. This is my wife, Grace. Here's the marriage certificate. Can you give her a work permit, please? Grand, that'll be about 20 to 50 euro, please. Chunk, stamp, there you go. And on your bike, you've got your work permit. (laughs) So it's easy as that. It's a little bit harder, but it's essentially just, it's a fairly easy process. As easy as it is to do that in Ireland, it is 180 degrees the complete opposite (laughs) to do that in the US. Yeah. Grace had to sponsor me to come over. Mm -hmm. And we had to go down through this whole fiance visa road and she had to sponsor me to come over. And that took the best part of a year. And so we were, we dated long distance for 13 months. Wow. In 2008, no less. It's not yeah, like you guys so, weren't FaceTiming. No, yeah, there was, we had no iPhones. So wow. there was none of yeah. that. So we dated long distance. She came over to Ireland twice. I went back over to the States once. In between that time, just for a week here and there. Mm-hmm. But 
but yeah, I moved over here permanently in August of, is it August? Yeah, August of 09. And we were married in October of 2009. And that's how we met, dated, fell in love and got married. And yeah. two years later, we have a, a wild EF5 tornado <laughs> son in Killians. <laughs> Maybe not now because the church has grown, but in the early days, everyone knew Killian. Yeah. <laughs> It would, you were probably I, yeah. known as Killian's dad rather than Jamie. Hundred percent, yes. <laughs> and I'm I am more than happy to be known as Killian's dad. Yeah, <laughs> Emily, he has this gift that I could only dream of having. There was this one time where Grace and I were in Pan- all three of us were in Panera, and we had ordered our food, and and Grace and I are sitting towards the front door, and Killian had asked us. Uh, do you, oh, can I just go wait for the food by where they deliver the food? So, yeah, it's fine. No problem. There's 15, 20 minutes go by and there's no sign of our food or, or, or Killian. And I can see him, so I'm not too concerned. But I go to check and see what's happening. He's having a full-blown conversation with this elderly gentleman. <laughs> and they're both just waiting for their food. And he's just lapping it up with this random stranger. And he's just, he has this gift of being able to just talk to whoever he can and making connections with them. It's truly an extraordinary gift that he has. Isn't it cool when our kids are gifted in ways that we aren't? And I get to think, mm-hmm. oh, wow, that is so cool about you. I, I can think of yeah. something for each of our kids that is like that. Okay, Jamie, I want to ask you this really easy question. And I'm being sarcastic because it's not. It's a really big question, but I like asking it this way because it leaves room for people to answer in lots of different ways. And I found that to be really beautiful. But how has the gospel changed your life? Wow. Sorry, when I say that my emotions are on the surface, you're experiencing that right now for the, yeah. yeah. I don't think I'd be alive. I know this kid. And he reminds me of me. He's someone who takes all of the problems of the world on his shoulders. And that was me. The running joke amongst my friend group growing up was, Jamie, I'm, I'm, I don't know how you're not on crack. That was the running joke. And Because that would be how you would cope with all the things you were holding? Yeah. There's a history of alcoholism in my family as well. And I don't know if I would have gone down that road, but I had a taste for it. And I wasn't, I did not operate in any kind of self-control. There's also a lot of, and I, I didn't touch on this and we don't have to get into this, but I've had friends who I've either had to walk back from the brink of taking their own life or in in one case, a friend who did take their own life. And... That's very, that was very much in the ether of my life. Emily, I can't, I, I have not described accurately that, that feeling. I don't know how to. When I said that I was standing in front of that, of the Dominican church, when I was just feeling like a, there was just a black, my life was a black hole. I'm not sure. I just, I don't know. I could be just, I could be making a bigger deal about it than what it is, but I get the sense that I may not be alive had I not heard the good news that someone sacrificed themselves for me and presented a way of living life that was different than how I was living my life at the time. This world can be very dehumanizing and things that happen to us can be incredibly dehumanizing. 
And Jesus came to show us what it means to be a person. He presented an alternative way to live. It's not always easy being a follower of Jesus. There's a paradox in that we're called to take up a cross and follow him. But at the same time, he simultaneously says that his yoke is easy and light. And I don't know how else to say it other than I actually enjoy living in that tension. I enjoy and I appreciate and I love living the life presented to me by the Gospels. I enjoy living in that tension too. Such a great way of saying it. The tension, I want to say, it doesn't make the brokenness of the world make sense. But it's the only way that leads to something that makes sense. It's the only way to have any hope to say, one day this will make sense. It doesn't right now. But in that tension, I'd rather say, I'd rather stake my life on the hope of Jesus than on nothing at all. I think that's what it means to have faith in God or to have trust in him. Something I've been thinking about lately. You you bringing... You asking me to be on this has has made me think about my grandmother a lot and just made me think about her faithfulness and even her life now, today, and she's been gone for 20-odd years now. The quiet faithfulness of an elderly woman is still speaking to me today. And death was not and still is not strong enough. It wasn't strong enough to hold Jesus back and when he overcame it. And it's, it's not strong enough to stop the witness and the testimony of my grandmother. Jamie, you are, I, I didn't admittedly know you very well before doing yeah. this. It's one of my absolute delights in getting to interview other people is feeling like I know their story. I know who they are better. And I just, I absolutely love it. But what I want to say is my takeaway from this is that you are so intentional and thoughtful. You are a deep thinker, and I really appreciate that. Everyone takes this process seriously when I ask them, but you entered into it with some true intentionality, and I could see that in a way that really set it apart. So I really, yeah, I just want to say that I really admire you, and I really am grateful for your story. Okay, I prepped you for this at the beginning, but what is something that you're reading right now that you enjoy mm -hmm. other than Tish Harrison Warren? Do you ever read things that are light and fluffy or is it always something of Tish's caliber? Oh my gosh, you've caught me at the wrong time to ask this question. <laughs> if you say you're reading like N.T. Wright. <laughs> I know, right? Oh my gosh. Okay. Are we sharing some inside baseball here a little bit? So our church is going through sure. membership yeah. th stuff right now. And yeah, let's go there. I'm reading everything and anything I can get my hands on and what it means to be an Anglican. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I don't, there's nothing fluffy at the moment. I'm, tr I'm trying to think about the last fluffy thing that I read. Oh yeah, Anglicanism, not super fluffy. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it's great. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I have a better one. Yes, what? ask me something. Okay, go ahead. What's your favorite podcast? Oh, am I allowed to say something different than yours? Yes, please do. <laughs> okay, my favorite podcast is an Irish sports podcast, Kel Surprise, right? Okay. Okay. 
it's called the, it's called the second captain's podcast it's just three guys just talking about sports but it helps it's the only it's the one consistent connection that i have to home regularly mm-hmm. i talk to my dad probably once a week maybe twice i don't know what it is this podcast just keeps me it just keeps me connected to home it keeps one foot over the one foot over the ocean so to speak yeah that's probably close to how i feel when i listen to 90s country music and drive to lake tim killer with the windows down <laughs> yes perfect <laughs> somebody out there knows what i'm talking about and somebody out there knows what you're talking about <laughs> yep that's awesome cool jamie thank you again for doing this for spending an hour and a half talking to me it's been awesome i'm very grateful for you i'm grateful for grace i feel like i know her a little bit better and I've known Killian for a long time, so it's nice to finally get to know his parents. <laughs> well, truly, thank you so much for this. I think in about five years' time, I'm going to look back on me sitting at my desk at work, getting an email from someone who I've barely spoken to, and just asking me to share as just another turning point in my life that I can look back on with fondness and just say that was actually a defining moment for me because I was able to reveal just that little bit more and expose just that little bit more parts of my life that need and needed God's grace and God's healing. And so I'm incredibly grateful that you asked me to be on the show.